Get ready. You're tuned in to Tea Time Unfiltered with your girl, Lovely Tea, bringing you the hottest trending topics on social media. Stay connected. Instagram.com slash Lovely Tea 2002. Hey, you guys. Welcome to another episode of Tea Time Unfiltered with your girl, Lovely Tea. Hey, tea sippers. I have a special guest with me here. I have Emily. She is back. And we're going to be talking about quite a few different topics today. So, Emily, go ahead and reintroduce yourself. Hey, everybody. My name's Emily. I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, me and Emily talk all the time in the DM. And, you know, I just always appreciate your honesty because we talk about a lot of deep stuff from conspiracies to you know, what's going on with the children and, you know, Walmart selling all these sexualized toys. And then, you know, we always have really deep conversations about life and our past and the things that we've been through. And one of the things that me and you have always talked about, and I've learned so much from you, is the whole um, drug culture, the whole drug use, prescription pain meds, and how prevalent it's become. And I've had my battles with prescription pain meds coming from, coming from a person who has a chronic illness who had to use, who had to use prescription pain meds to like, you know, to get rid of my pain, my physical pain. Like this was medicine I was prescribed and it's medicine I still have to use to this day. And you were kind of telling me on how you had ended up on it and it just kind of snowballed. It affected you, your family and things like that. So if you want to just go ahead uh-huh. and we can touch on that and how prevalent it is in like the rest of society outside of people who need it medically. Yeah, um, it's it's really crazy. Um, and I was actually talking to a client the other day um, who was telling me uh, his story, which was very similar. And they all start the same as usually um, you start out just using them recreationally. And especially um, so I say, you know, I, I guess in, yeah, say in Memphis. So uh, that had always been, you know, like the music down here, especially, mm-hmm. you know, 36 Mafia, all that, you know, all that. That was <laughs> right. always, you know, <laughs> that was always, um, you know, in the music and stuff. So that, that was how we got down. And also, <clears throat> all my friends, they like to smoke weed a lot. I didn't really like to smoke weed because it made me so paranoid. So mm-hmm. I would take, you know, like Xanax or something. And then I could, like, party with my friends and not be, you know, scared. I could still, you know, get high or whatever. But um, it started out just recreational use. And also I had family members, like immediate family members, who would get prescriptions. Um, My brother has a chronic illness as well. And my mom dealt with chronic pain. And so they would get prescriptions and stuff. And, you know, hell, we'll just everybody pass it out. We'd take them, have fun, have a good old funky time. And then, like I said, it just would be a recreational thing. And then next thing you know, okay, well, I'm doing it on the weekends. Well, then, hell, it's Wednesday. Let me, I'll go ahead and, you know, get high on Wednesday and maybe Friday too. And the next thing you know, you have a physical dependency to these drugs to where you have to have them just to get up and go to work to function. And then when you don't have them, you go through withdrawals so that fear of that sickness because opiate, especially opiate withdrawals, mm-hmm. that's no joke. It's not. So you, yeah, like you're constantly either, you're pretty much just fighting to feel normal again. 
Right. Now, how long would you say it takes you to get to that phase? Because that's what a lot of people don't realize is that when they first start taking these drugs, be it if you're taking Percocets or smoking weed or, you know, drinking lean, it's fun at first. You know, it's fun. It's a rush. You're in a certain environment. But like you said, you go from just using it, you know, Friday, Saturday, and then it creeps into Sunday. And then it creeps into, well, now it's a Wednesday afternoon and I'm getting high during my lunch break. So how long do you think it takes to get to that point? Because people act like, oh, that's four years from now. And it doesn't take that long to become addicted to some of this stuff. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, obviously, it depends on the person. I also Mm -hmm. think a lot of it has to do with uh, what you do for a living. Because, you know, some people, they might have... um, jobs that are hard labor so they might need extra energy and some people pain pills they don't slum them out they they give them energy so a lot of people will take a pay hey, i can get through work also like we were talking you know working me working in the strip clubs and stuff when i would take it certain drugs i could tell certain nights my money would be more on point because i'd have more energy or i'd just be more mm-hmm. fucked up or whatever so um depending on what you do for a living or just, I don't know, people in their certain living circumstances at home, people who do have chronic pain. But, oh, it, it, no, definitely not four years. I would say a couple of months, mm. if that, maybe a month or two at the, at the least. It, you literally, it, it happens so fast. That's why I always try to tell younger girls, don't fool around with that stuff because, or not even just younger girls, just younger people. Because mm-hmm. you think you might be just popping a couple of Percocets with your friends. You're, you'll wake up one day and you're like, I'm I'm addicted. I'm a junkie. Right. And that's what we also call back in the day um, is a functioning addict. My mother-in-law used to say that all the time, that a lot of her friends were functioning addicts, where you'd be surprised at how many people work corporate jobs, were doctors, lawyers, I mean, in high-end positions, but they got down. On the weekends, they snorted coke, they did hair on. Oh, for sure. And they're still able to quote-unquote, function and do their job, but once they get home, they're terrors. You know, they're going crazy. You know, they're just able to hold it together for a certain amount of time in the public. You know, so it it gets very deep. And I remember, you know, like I told you before, like, for me, I would get mad at people who would do things recreationally because I'm like, you're healthy. You're putting this stuff into your system. Meanwhile, I have a real illness and I have no choice. And, you know, I really felt the ways because I watch a lot of my friends get addicted to like pain meds. And, you know, they, of course, everybody starts with the liquor, the weed. Then eventually they're popping pills. You know, one of my really good friends, she even got addicted to heroin. Which was, to me, shocking because her mom, you know, growing up, her mom ended up turning into a crackhead. So we watched her mom just totally deteriorate, go to prison, you know, went through all types of stuff. So when she, when one of my best friends fell off the wagon, it's like, yo, you watched your mom go through this. Like, why? And you had explained to me and other people, it's that certain people, you're you're predisposed and it's easier for you to get addicted. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't yeah, realize that I, at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely, which I mean, I guess, this, you know, that's a whole other conversation of how, like, you know, different uh, demographics and stuff, they've treated it. But uh, <clears throat> as far as, uh, the, you know, uh, the opioid crisis is affecting white communities at a, rap, a rapid rate. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know what it, 
it's just so all of a sudden now they're actually saying, oh, well, addiction is a um, a, a, a disease or it's a illness or I can't remember the. Yeah, but before, you know, okay, crack, it was, black it was people. affecting other, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, well, you're you're a criminal, you know, from in jail, but now, oh, if, you know, you're opiate, oh, it's a disease, and we got to do this, this, and this, but um, it's crazy, because that's another thing, so a lot of people that, you usually don't just wake up and, you know, wreck for age, like, oh, I'm going to shoot some heroin, you know, you, you ain't going to do no heroin like that, it's usually like a snowball effect because that's actually with me. I, I started just taking, you know, pain pills here and there recreationally. And then, um, as time went on, they, it didn't matter how many I would take. I could take 10, 10 milligram more tabs Percocet within a day. And I wouldn't even be like that fucked up. I could still like, uh, function. Mm-hmm. But, um, then, uh, when was it? Probably, my timeline might be off, maybe 2008. I think that was when uh, OxyContin, which I always want to say OxyContin. It just sounds better, but I know it's Oxy, OxyContin. We just called them OCs. Mm-hmm. But anyway, those were, they, they started um, hitting the streets pretty hard. And, you know, you could pay $30 for an 80 milligram OC and um, snort it, and you would be fucked or just completely out of it all day. And you're like, oh, well, I'm only spending $30 on this one that'll last me all day. So then, you know, they get it. I think now, right now, it's like the 15 milligram Percocet or the Roxy's or something like that is what's going around now. But um, then eventually, it's the same thing. Like, you can't find any. You're so sick, that fear of being sick. And so you finally, someone's like, oh, well, I ain't got nothing but, you know, that dog, they, they called it dog food down here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, I got that dog food, that heroin, whatever. And if you're really, really sick, you're going to fucking do it. You'll do it because yeah. you don't want to be sick. And then you're like, wait a minute, I can do just this tiny little bit for $20 and it lasts me all day. And most people will start out, you know, maybe snort it or something. But eventually they, you know, you turn into a full-blown heroin addict and you're shooting it and all that. Mm. Luckily, I never got to the point on, um, I never got to where I was using uh, heroin, but I have uh, a lot of friends that are dead now that we used to all, you know, I, I thought they were my friends, but then you find out later, okay, that was just like my, my dope buddy, as they would call it, but uh, they're dead now because mm. they eventually fell into heroin and, I mean, that's, you know, you're either, either going to end up dead or in jail. Yeah. Like, you don't meet too many old heroin addicts. I think I've met one guy mm-hmm. that was an old heroin addict, and I, that's just by the grace of God. Right. And that's the thing that's so disturbing is that even a lot of people tend to think that because it's a prescription, it's safer because it's coming from a doctor. And that's so far from the right. truth. It's nothing but legalized heroin. It's just a different form. It's still Absolutely. in the same. It's still coming from the poppy plant. It's synthetic. It's made in a lab, but it, it's the same, you know, addictive properties. And I remember I told you a story about how I had to wean myself off of um, prescription medicines. I had gotten addicted. So I'll tell the audience here. So today's sponsor comes from BetterHelp.com. Are there certain things that are interfering with your happiness? Is there something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, BetterHelp is here to assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. You can speak to them in a safe and comfortable environment and everything will be confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. If you want to start living a happier life today... 
As a listener, you can get 10% off your very first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash SipSlow. That is my code to get the 10% off. Over 1 million people are taking charge of their mental health by talking to licensed professional counselors who specialize in a variety of things, everything from depression to stress, anxiety, relationship issues, sleeping, trauma, and much more. So once again, if you are looking for some type of mental health support, make sure you go on to betterhelp.com slash sip slow to get 10% off today. So this was like back in 2008, 2009, and I had been in the hospital fighting for my life for like a whole month. Like I was sick. I had a major crisis. I was in so much pain. Um, And when you get to a certain level of pain, they give you a pain pump where you push it like every 30 minutes to get um, Dilaudid or morphine. So I'm pushing the pain pump literally every 10 minutes and it's not doing shit. And I'm in so much pain. I'm so high out my mind. And I'm I'm at CMC at the time. And my doctor, God bless them, they were assigned to another hospital. So they were like assigned to like Mercy or something. This one I was living in the Carolinas. And I called my my hematologist and I called my, my primary care doctor. And I'm like, I need drugs. This medicine here isn't working. I'm like freaking out. I'm like, they're trying to kill me. They're not giving me enough pain meds. I'm in pain. And I'm literally trying to get them to bring me medicine from another hospital. That's how high out my mind I was. And so finally, the doctors at the hospital I was in, they come into the room and they're like, you can't keep calling around to other hospitals to try and get pain meds. And I'm like, I'm in so much pain, like I'm still feeling the pain. And and he told me flat out, he said, we can't give you anything else. And I'm like crying and my nose is running. And my mother-in-law's like, your body is physically addicted. And I was somebody who never even smoked weed before. And she's like, you are addicted and you're going through withdrawal. And they were like, they legally could not give me any more medicine. They said, we've given you enough pain meds to kill the entire fourth floor. And that just like, it, it, it just woke me up like, what? He was like, we have literally given you enough medication where this entire floor, myself included, the doctor was saying this would be dead. You know, so this is how powerful that stuff is. And this is how easy your body becomes addicted to it. So I remember after being in there for a month, I finally get out and they let me out. Because at that point, they really couldn't do too much for my pain. And I'm like, I'm just ready to go home. I'm over it. I'm tired. I lost all this weight. I look horrible. And so they sent me home on 90 milligrams of morphine. And I remember I got home. Yeah, 90 milligrams of morphine. And yeah, and I was probably like 125 pounds at the time. And so I get home and I'm still in pain. You know, my joints are still swollen. It's just really bad. And, you know, I take it and those same feelings from the hospital come back. You know, I'm just I'm shaking. My nose is running. And, you know, to my mother-in-law's credit, like she really helped me overcome that. And she was like, you know, because she's been through her issues with drugs and stuff like that when she was younger. And she was like, you know, you're going to have to fight this. She was like, because this is not you. You know what I'm saying? You're somebody. She said, it breaks my heart to see you like this because you only like this because of your chronic illness, not because you just want to get high and party, you know? And so she really helped me. And I remember I was like, I just don't want to be addicted to these pills anymore. I just want to be myself before I went into the hospital. And I remember her taking the pills and 
I was like, just leave me here in the room. Let me just watch my TV, you know, keep the boys, you know, and she would just bring me lemonade. That was the only thing I really could drink and hold down was lemonade from Jack in the Box. And it was right up the street from my house. And she would bring me big old, right, big old things of like, you know, you know, Southern lemonade, honey. It's good, right? And that is all I would drink for like a whole week. And when I tell you, I was able to kick it and I never touched the rest of those 90 milligrams, you know, and when I was telling you that story, you said that's amazing. And that tells you that your body is not dis, you know, like predisposed to the addiction, because for most people, they wouldn't be able yeah. to kick it by them, you know, kick off that habit no. by themselves in a bedroom, you know? No, no, absolutely not. Um, a lot of addicts, they want to, I mean, if you really think about it, like, to where people get to the point of where, you know, they're living in tents and under highways. I mean, who would want to get to that point? I mean, nobody, a lot of addicts, I've seen them before. I mean, I've had a niece and nephew that both have, well, one died to addiction, but um, the other one, it was kind of similar. But anyway, it, they a lot of people who are addicted want to, but it is, it's just a different kind of demon. It's, Mm-hmm. It's that's what the, the medication that I was telling you about that I've been on that I, I do recommend to a lot of people who are struggling with addiction, which is called Suboxone. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of people at NA and AA and stuff like that are uh, they're oh you're switching one thing out for another, but I, I don't agree with that. But I know everybody has their own opinion. But mm-hmm. this particular medication is the only medication that I've ever seen work. So I mean, just consistently for people that are addicted because of the way that it pretty much it tricks your mind into thinking that you're, I mean, it gives you a, it, it affects your receptors, your opiate receptors differently to where it doesn't fully open them like a pain pill. It only partially opens them to the point where you're not getting high, but it tricks your brain into thinking, oh, I have that opiate, so you're not craving it. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people, once they kick, you know, they're like, oh, I just don't want to be sick anymore. And they get past that point of not being sick. So maybe they do sweat it out for two weeks. Well, when that addict kicks back in, then they're still craving it. I've, I've detoxed off of um, OxyContin, pain pills, stuff like that before and not been physically addicted. Mm-hmm. And still, then my mind, like, oh, I, you know, it's 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 like a demon in you. Like I, I need it. I want it. I want it. You know, it's, it's a really tough battle. Yeah. And I know you were the one who was first telling me about Zaproxen. Is that the name of it? Uh, it's called Suboxone. I think Zaboxone. that's the name brand one. Okay. Suboxone. Yeah. It's, Cause I know uh, a lot of heroin addicts back in the day, they were given methadone. And people would say, well, you're just switching one thing for another. But with the methadone, for them, it was more controlled. It was more, you know, instead of them being on the corner fiending and trying to, you know, find somebody to buy from, this was more controlled. um, And it helped them. It it took that edge off. So is it similar to methadone? Like a new age version? Yeah, it's very similar, except it's not... um it's not as strong. Like a lot of people, um, well, I've taken methadone before. Me too. And I've taken no joke. Met- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's very, very strong. And, uh, I don't, I never ended up going to the clinic, but I know I'd, I'd seen people who would go to like the methadone clinic mm-hmm. and, um, you know, like they'd have to go every day and then sometimes they would send them home with it and stuff like that. And, 
I, I don't know. I, just from my experience, not on speaking of everybody, but it seemed like if I was around someone who was on methadone, it seemed like they were still kind of fucked up. Like they would still kind of be slurring their words a little and stuff, which they could just be on a strong dose at that time. Mm. Um, but methadone, I'm not knocking it. I just, for me personally, the Suboxone, I, I find more effective because a lot of people that I knew um, on methadone, either they didn't stay on it or uh, and would quit, and then they'd go back and to the drugs, and then they'd always end up overdosing. But you, first, you have to want to get sober, because I do know a lot of people on the streets that are still using opiates. They'll keep the boxing on them because it'll take those withdrawals away, so they'll keep that as like a backup. And I've heard people before say, oh, yeah, I could go get it right now, but I don't want to because the thing with the Suboxone is it also has um, an opiate blocker in it. Mm -hmm. So, like, I've been on it so long, I could literally take a handful of pain pills and I wouldn't feel anything. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it has an opiate blocker in it, uh, and then it also has the the, the opiate antagonist, I guess is what it's called. But, yeah, it's very similar methadone but usually you just go to your doctor you can go to your primary care doctor and um you know they, they manage you under prescription i mean they're obviously at first going to put you on more and lower you down to like a maintenance dose but you can function as like a normal person mm -hmm. or you know quote unquote whatever normal is uh to where you know you're able to go to school or you can you know have kids and be a, a parent and buy a home and get your credit right and you know just be i guess a productive member of society right yeah it's it's no joke and i remember how i even got methadone is for some reason that's what they prescribed in la for chronic illness so my doctor in la when i was in uh. la um he prescribed that he didn't like prescribing opioids like Percocets and things like that. He was like, right. yeah, here we prescribe methadone. And so that kind of made me nervous because I knew it was for people who had used heroin. And I'm like, okay, am I trading one thing for another? And all I know is that um, I tried it and I literally was knocked out for 17 hours. Like my family thought I had like literally yeah. died. Like I didn't even wake up to go pee. Like I was just dead sleep for 17 <laughs> hours straight that was like the scariest shit you know like i just could not function yeah and then i thought well maybe okay fine that was just the first time maybe that was my body getting used to it and then i remember i had i was you know having some pain issues and i took it again this maybe like a few months later same thing just knocked out I was supposed to go to like a family picnic later. I couldn't, it was just too much for my body. So I never took it after that again, you know? So yeah, methadone is very, very strong and it's, it's no joke, but I can see how that would help somebody who's used to shooting heroin, you know, but for somebody right, like me exactly. who just needs a pill here and there when I'm in pain, that's a bit of extreme. So I just was like, no, I'm cool. I don't want anything that strong, you know? So it, it's really no joke. And, um, you know, and especially, like I said, like, we're all, like we always say, it's very cliche. But, like, what one does, it really does affect everyone. And that's the part that can be frustrating to somebody who needs their pain meds and who needs, you know, certain things. There's been so many rules now changed. And, you know, like we've talked about before, it's oh, yeah. very funny that once it hit the white community, it's like, oh, we need changes. We need counseling. We need this and that. But when it was affecting the black uh -huh. community with crack and, and hair on and things like that, 
that, it was throw them to jail, throw them in jail. They're criminals. And so one thing right. for me as a as a patient who has to get this, like even in Minnesota, they changed so many rules after Prince died. Because remember, he was found with all types of drugs in his systems, you know, doctors writing prescriptions and things like that. So, uh-huh. like, here we need a, they have to scan your driver's license. Um, even with my new health insurance company, they cannot give me three months worth of pain meds. I can only get enough. Literally, it only lasts me. I'm lucky if it lasts me a whole month, you know, where before... You know, be three months. I don't have to call the office all the time. I have what I have and that's it. And it's like now it's, you know, it's unfortunate because now it's like I have to call every two weeks, you know, and then you Uh get there even with promethazine because I have to use that um, for my stomach, you know, because a lot of those opioids are very strong. They give you nausea, you know, sometimes I feel like. That's it's it's taking the pain away from, let's say, whatever joint pain I'm having, but it's giving me stomach pain where the stomach pain is even worse than the pain I was trying to cure. So the so the uh, promethazine helps with that. Well, now you really can't even get promethazine. I'm grandfathered in. I'm one of the few people. Yeah who can still get pure liquid promethazine. Most people cannot get it. They will give you Zofran, which does shit. Zofran does not work for me at all. So, right. and, I, and I can only take liquid payments at this point because me and the pills, we just don't mix. So I, I'm like grandfathered in and we had to fight. Like my doctor had to fight for me to be able to get it because so many people were making lean. So that was the thing. Yeah, and that was mm-hmm. what... That was so crazy to me when, um, I think we had talked about that because I know what obviously what promethazine is and I would hear them like, you know, in the music talk about promethazine and I'm like, wait a minute, isn't that just, cause uh, I think one of the, I don't know if it was the off brand, but it was called Finnegan and it was yeah, like the Finnegan. thing, it was promethazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, cause speaking of doctors, my mom, um, and you know, Prince and all that. So my mom, one of the doctors that ended up pretty much kind of getting her hooked on the pain pills. He actually was Elvis's doctor at one point. Mm. And, um, yeah, no, and he, uh, oh, he was real old. He, and he passed away since, but I mean, she would go and he, I'll never forget. He would give her a big old bottle of Percocet, uh, a bottle of Dilata, Valium, and then he gave her some Ambien and he looked at her because I was in there with her and he was like, no, you be careful. This Ambien is addictive. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, like all this shit. And, but promethazine was one of the, the pills that he would give her. And I remember sometimes it would be like in a liquid form. Mm-hmm. So whenever I would hear like that in music and stuff like that, I'm like, isn't that just for nausea? Like, why? What, what's the big deal with that? And yeah. like you said, it's been abused so much because yeah it does make you sleepy and yeah, it, it you does help sleep. with nausea mm-hmm. yeah it, it knocks you out it make me ir- yeah it make me grumpy so I never really cared for it I would just take Dramamine but I can understand with really strong pain pills if you're not used to them why you definitely need it but right so it, 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 like, it took me out because like I said I've been on promethazine hell the pills and the liquid before I even got on like liquid pain meds but um, I mean for like fucking 15 years. So when uh-huh. I went to go pick up my prescription, cause by then, you know, I was ready to move to the liquid and everything. They're like, Oh, we can't fill this for you. The hell you can't. 
<laughs> like I have to take this, you know? So we, yeah, we have to fight it. We have to fight it with the insurance company and show them like, mm-hmm. no, she's been on this for years. She's never abused it. I only probably get it like in a year, maybe three prescriptions, you know? And they were able to show that she's not coming in here once a week. She's not making bottles of fucking lean and pouring right. some Sprite. Like I literally take a teaspoon right. as needed maybe once a month, you know? And I just, and that's the thing. I just never understood Um, And I guess we can segue into that is the glamorization of drug use in the entertainment industry, you know, from music to movies. And they make it so glamorous, like even like you were saying, three, six mafia sipping on some scissor. Look, I remember that was like the bomb Mm -hmm. back in high school. And (laughs) you didn't even know what the hell scissor was, you know, I didn't start Mm -hmm. really using any heavy pain meds until after. I had my oldest son. So I was like in my 20s by then, you know, thank goodness that I wasn't on anything heavy in high school. You know, for the most part, I wasn't a sick. So that was a blessing because now you see kids, regardless they have a chronic illness or not. I mean, you have 14, 15 year olds out here. They're literally druggies. You know, they're making their own yeah. versions of lean. They're ordering stuff on the Internet. They're getting things from friends. They're taking Lord tab. And, you know, a lot of it is a lot of these rappers and entertainers, they really glamorize it. And I remember Floyd Mayweather. Uh-huh. Now, we all know he's not, you know, he's not the most articulate person, hoodie. But I remember when he came out and he was like, um, you know, since when has it become cool to be a junkie? And I'm yeah. like, he's and not lying. Yeah, he's saying the truth. No. Why he is this glamorized? You know, why? Like, people don't understand. Like, it's to the point now where people brag about, you know, um, doing lines, you know, in songs and snorting. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. And this is stuff Jim that World. back in the day, you'd be ashamed to admit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, like, yeah, there was, like, Scarface and the whole, you know, I was, when cocaine was like a rich man's drug and all that but I mean when I was younger like stuff like that scared me you know when I was mm, I would take pain pills no problem pills didn't scare me but putting something up my nose that I I didn't know what it was that scared me and that was like something you know you didn't you didn't talk about doing stuff like that and when you were talking about Floyd Mayweather too I remember um when Juice World passed away you know they Mm -hmm. old interviews of him came up and he was talking about um future and how he was so obsessed with future and i i can't remember it was like dirty sprite something like that he said just listening to that song made him want to you know drink lean and and stuff like that so he had that song molly percocet you know, and it's like you put that Yo, stuff yeah. to a really melodic beat. And that's the scary part with a lot of our music is the beats and the melodic. And you hear the flute. So you get entranced. You know, you don't even realize that uh-huh. you're literally singing about real drugs that will fuck people up. You know, Percocet, you know, mask yes, that's that combination. Mask off. Yeah, that's a crazy combination. Yeah. You're, you're literally taking yeah. these pills and your heart could explode. You know, but kids, yeah, they don't know that. Yeah, and downers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And not to mention, it is, uh, well, Molly, and it, to me, I mean, that, that's not really right, but, like, just Molly is pretty much ecstasy, except, I guess, more in a pure form. Mm-hmm. But uh, Molly, which MDMA is, uh, methylene methamphetamine is what it stands for. So that's methamphetamine, which is amphetamine, which is speed. You're taking pure speed, mm-hmm. and then you're mixing it with a downer. I mean, that's speedballing, which a lot of people, that that will kill you. I know a lot of people who have died 
from speedballing. Because mm-hmm. they take uppers to stay up, but then they get too jittery or they start coming down, so they mix it together. A lot of heroin addicts um, do mess because they don't want to fall asleep. They want to enjoy their high. And I'm like, that is like, that's just a, a perfect combination for your heart to explode. Yeah. Yeah. And these kids don't understand it. And I think that was the saddest part when it came out that Future doesn't do those drugs. He doesn't do the things that he raps about. And when Juice World was like, you know, I looked up to you. I started doing drugs because of you. It's like Future. It just made him look dumb. Because I think at that point, you yeah. finally realize that it's not just about getting a check and getting money. These kids are hanging on to your every word, you know, and Juice right. was very talented. But you could tell he was battling a lot of drug demons. You know, a lot of these kids uh-huh. are getting, you know, very high and they're doing dangerous drugs. And when you're in the studio... What a lot of people don't understand is that that environment definitely, you know, fuels the drug culture because it may take you hours to come up with a song or a beat. And so you want to stay up. So what are you doing? You're doing mollies. You're doing speed. You're doing, you know, things like that to try right. and stay up. And then when you're finally ready to crash because you've taken so much to stay up, now you got to get a downer to try and come down. And it's a very dangerous cycle, you know, and it's unfortunate because so many of these rappers rap about this. And I remember even when um, Frito Santana, when he died, you know, a lot of people thought that he'd be killed in some type of shootout with all the shit that went on with the drill music scene and Chief Keef. But he died from, you know, lean abuse, you know, from all those years of, of drinking lean and, you know, promoting yeah, it and, and stuff like that. And it, it really takes a toll on you after a while. Yeah, I uh, listened to an interview that Little Baby did, and he was talking about lean, and he was saying that he felt like when he would drink lean, that it would kind of get bring out more creativity mm-hmm. in him. Like, he could really, like, you know, it, it just kind of boosted him more. <clears throat> so, I mean, even in that instance, some people believe that, that when they do certain uh, drugs, that, it you know, they can make a hotter beat. That just like when I was talking about in the strip club, you know, you, you, you take some speed, you're going, you got it, you're talking, you, you know, you're sitting game and stuff. But uh, I watched an old movie, I remember, with my mom one time when I was detoxing. And I think it was like a like a biopic of, um, was it Billy, uh, Billy Holiday, I think? Mm-hmm. Anyway, it, it was, she wasn't, she was tired and she was on the road and, you know, she was like, hey, just hand me a gave me that bottle of bourbon, and he was like, here, try this, you know, it, it was like morphine or something, and I believe that's a thing, too, in the industry as well. I think that a lot of times, they do, just like you were saying in the studio, they they have all these yes men around them, and they're like, we need you to work, you need to make money, you know, we need you to go. They have access to everything. Mm-hmm. So here, take this, this will make you, you know, produce a, a hot song, or this will keep you up. You know, it'll push them. It, just like I was saying, how quick it is to turn into an addict it has a lot to do with also what do you do for a living? Yeah, yeah. And I even learned this when I was um when I lived in L.A. They had me do one of those movie screenings for the movie Concussion. And it was really dope because, you know, being a sports mom and having boys in sports and things like that. I didn't know a whole lot about concussions at the time and all that stuff. And that's when the whole CTE thing was really coming to the forefront. And so I was picked to go to this screening where we got to, you know, watch the movie. And afterwards, we did a roundtable discussion on it. 
And so there was a guy that was there and he was a semi pro football player. And he was telling us that, you know, that is very true. And a lot of times uh, people don't realize how much some of these sports players, they claim, oh, you know, they get drug tested and you can't do drugs. And, you know, if they find stuff in your system, steroid and things like that, you can get in trouble. And so whatchamacallit, um, he was saying that it's funny that they'll do that. They'll do all this testing. They'll do all this, you know, trying to figure things out and make sure people are doing the right thing, but let them get injured on the field. Let them get hit the wrong way. And when they carry on that gurney to the back, let's say you're not hurt enough to be out the game. They're injecting you with opioids. They're injecting you with pain. Oh, medicine. You know what I'm saying? To get you back absolutely. out there. And that's a dirty little secret. So, you know, oh, for, for sure. them to try and lie and act like, oh, CT didn't exist. And, you know, this is over an over exaggeration. He was teaching us a lot in that round table. Like, no, you know, when you fall out, when you get hit and, you know, when they want to push you back out there, they are injecting you with drugs. So it's, it's very sad how a lot of people's bodies end up being commodified. You know, like you're no longer right. a person, you're a commodity. We own you, the, you know, uh-huh. part of NFL, NBA, you know, also happens in the NBA too, you know. So it's oh, yeah. like, oh, it's not okay for you to do it recreationally on your own time, but we can pump you up with that shit in the event you get hurt. So, yeah, it's right. It's crazy. And I've always, I've always thought it was strange because I've done, which I'm not a big weed smoker myself, but I mean, I obviously have done it. It always made me, I'm not against it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't, it just, it makes, it makes me too paranoid. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> I'm not a fun person to smoke weed with. I don't laugh and eat up all the cookies. I get paranoid and tell everybody to get the hell out. But, um, anyways, uh, I do know that it affects other people differently, just like a lot of drugs do. I mean, there's so many, that's why you have meth heads and you have crack heads and you have heroin, <clears throat> excuse me, heroin addicts and alcoholics. It's just whatever. It's, it's, it's just chemistry. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Anyway, I was doing a lot of research on how um, even CBD and weed and stuff like that really does help a lot of people for pain. And it's not as addictive or as dangerous as an opioid pain medication. But in the sports industry, they're like, no, no weed, no weed at all. And I'm like, so you would rather them be on these really dangerous, addictive, like can kill you drugs, but weed they can't do that for pain or to help relax their muscles or, you know, any of that. You would rather them be on pain medication. Right. right. And then they could turn into addicts just as easily. It's a lot of doctors. Uh, when I went to rehab, a lot of the people that were in there, I was like the youngest person there. It was so weird. I, I expected there to be a lot of other people there, but it was mostly a lot of older people. Mm-hmm. And they're either alcoholics or they were older adults that had um, went to the doctor, you know, got hurt at work, went to the doctor, got on pain medication, and and couldn't physically get themselves off of it. Mm. Yeah. So the doctors do, you know, and it's it's the pharmaceutical. I know that's a whole other conversation, too, but the pharmaceutical industry is no joke. It's very sinister, and uh, like you said before, the, the money's not in the cure. Mm-mm. It's in the illness. So, you know, they're pain medication companies. Uh, speaking of, which I was the, the drug I was talking about earlier, that helps treat addiction and is, is very successful. Mm-hmm. And it even, I've, I've read in other countries, 
that um, they've actually prescribed that for pain medication because it's not as addictive. But <clears throat> to get a prescription of that, say you have no insurance, to get a full prescription of that is like $700. Wow. Nobody can afford that. Wow. And that's if you don't have insurance. So if you have insurance, obviously it's different. But it just goes to show you right there. So something that could help someone, look how expensive it is. But a, a bottle of Percocet, well, you know, I, I don't know exactly how much it is, but I know damn sure it ain't 700 <laughs> Yeah, it's about 30 to 50 bucks, depending. Right. You know, it's, it's right. very crazy. a little crazy. bit more manageable. Yeah, and, you know, and it's and, and drug use, you know, I don't want to just put it on hip-hop and rappers and stuff like that. It's in every fraction you know it's in every fraction i mean even television shows like breaking bad you know where you have the high school chemistry teacher teacher who's trying to you know cure himself by creating crystal meth you know we had the television show weeds and you know even like the wolf on wall street how they were like you know in that drug business (laughs) you know i literally just watched that movie the other night and it's also not just hip-hop culture if you listen to um a lot of rock rock music Mm mm-hmm yeah, I mean, hell yeah, Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. I mean, just Ozzy Osbourne. He, he bragged about it oh, for years, yeah. and then his kids end up getting addicted oh, to yeah. drugs. You know? Yeah, they got addicted to the same thing I was on with those uh, oxycontins. Uh, it just doesn't sound right. <laughs> Content. I just want to say uh, that is on the most ease. But yeah, no, it's it's a, all kind of it. the blues. Um, Definitely rock, heavy metal, uh, emo. Like, there's so many different genres that, you know, has talked about music. I mean, even alternative music, I hear it in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Miley Cyrus, with the, you know, we popped in Miley, you know. Right, I mean, you know, and even def- she's taking pictures on Right, and even she's taking pictures on Instagram where she's hashtag, you know, drug addict and alcoholic. Like, bitch, that's not a good term. That's, you know, like, what's up with the low, you know, self-affirmations? Like, who wants to coin themselves a drug addict like it's cool? You know, but they try and make these things. Like I always say, we live in such an upside-down, you know, pendulum right now where good is bad and bad is good. You know, and that's what we need to be aware of. Upside-down world. Right. So now let's go ahead Mm -hmm. and segue with our last um, 20 minutes here. Um, And I want to talk about sex work. And how a lot of this stuff ties into each other, you know, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, right? And um, uh-huh. one thing I know is that on top of drugs being glamorized in the industry, you have this whole sex trade now that's being glamorized. You know, people are calling themselves sex workers and, you know, they have all these cute names. And a lot of times when it boils down to it, it's simply prostitution. You know what I mean? And I've always been that type. I've never knocked anybody in those industries as far as porn, stripping, any of that stuff. Because, you know, a lot of people like to down talk porn stars and talk shit about them. But for some reason, they never Uh talk shit about these people late at night when they're jerking off. Let's keep it real. You know what I mean? Like, Tiana Trump is that girl late at night. But then during the day, you want to troll her on Twitter and call her a whore. Miss London is that girl when you're watching her ride somebody late at night. But then during the day, you want to troll her and say she's everything but a child of God. So I I think society is very hypocritical. You know, it's like society's dirty little secret. And... You know, and one thing with like with sex work, I mean, I've had a lot of friends who have been strippers who have been in the industry, you know, and I remember when I first got approached, you know, to start stripping, 
And it was just, it was crazy because I was thinking about this when I was like, you know, we got, you know, when I was thinking about this whole podcast. And I remember when I first kind of got introduced to it, and it was this dude that I knew. I knew him when I was like 16. And he was a little bit older than me. He was like 20, but he was like really cool. And me and him were kind of talking or whatever. And um, he had a big brother. Now, his big brother was like at least 29. And I remember I was walking and I was in St. Paul. And I'm like walking to the bus stop. And it's funny because. We have uh, the bridges, right? So people in Minneapolis, necessarily, they don't come to St. Paul. St. Paul don't go to Minneapolis. But I grew up over south, and I lived in St. Paul, so I was always back and forth. So I had family on the south side, family Uh in St. Paul. So I was always between St. Paul and Minneapolis, you know, and my kids' family lived over north. So it's like I was kind of all over the Twin Cities. But it was funny because I was in St. Paul, and I'm walking, I'm going to the bus stop, and so the dude's big brother pulled up on me. And I was kind of surprised. Like, what you doing out here? Because there are Minneapolis dudes. And I was like, what are you doing in St. Paul? He's like, oh, I'm just, you know, handling some business. And so he was like, um, yeah, you looking real cute. And, you know, I know your birthday's coming up. Because about that time, I was getting ready to turn 18. And I was like, yeah, I'm excited. Uh-huh. Don't know what I'm going to do. But I'm going to try and figure something out. And he was like, oh, you should think about going down to Texas. And I'm like, Texas? And then I'm somebody who hadn't really left the Twin Cities. I think the furthest I've ever been is like Wisconsin and Chicago. So I'm like, what's in Texas? And he was uh-huh. like, oh, you should, you know, really think about stripping. You got a cute little body, you know, like a little model and all this other stuff. And I was like, uh, I don't know about all that. And so I remember he like pulled out like this huge wad of cash, you know, and being like a broke ass 17 year old, you're like, damn, where you get all that money? And he was like, you could be making this too. And I said, well, let me get some money. <laughs> you know, I'm a kid. I'm like, let me get some money. So he gave me like 50 bucks. And I was like, thank you. He was like, no, you really should think about coming down to Texas. You can make good money up there. You know, we can drive you down there for the weekend and bring you back. And you don't have to worry. And I was like, well, I don't thank my parents. You know what I'm saying? My parents will beat my ass. I don't think I just, you know, right. go to Texas for the weekend. <laughs> and he's all like, no, you just said right. that you're spending the night at your homegirl's house. Like, he's like, give me the rundown. And so at this point, I'm kind of feeling yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah, but I'm not realizing it because it's my, you know, the the guy that I like, it's his big brother. So I'm not like realizing anything. And that's why we all say hindsight is 2020. And so he's like, just tell me like, yeah, you could just say you spend the night at your at your friend's house. And he knew my friend. So he's saying their names. I was like, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I can do all that, you know. And then I was still in school at the time. And so looking back on that. You know, I didn't go with them. I didn't go down to Texas. But I know a lot of my friends who started stripping. Like, once they turned 18, you know, in the hood, you know, you're trying to get money. You're trying to survive. Your parents aren't taking care of you anymore because they feel like, well, you're grown. You're 18. You're on your own, which is such a fucked up mentality. But that's how a lot of parents get down, right? And it's like, no, you're not grown. You're still a kid. And so... I had a lot of friends that got into the game and got into and it starts with stripping. And that's one thing I noticed, you know, looking back on everything. It's, oh, I'm stripping. I'm making money. And I remember even feeling like shit at times because I'd be broke and I'm watching my homegirls. They have, you know, several hundred dollars and, you know, they got their own apartments and it's furnished. And it's just me and my son. And like, we're literally, we have nothing. We're literally sleeping on the couch. Cause I don't even have a bed yet, you know? And I'm just trying to slowly collect stuff and get things to furnish my place. Meanwhile, their house is like fully furnished. But then as I learned more, you find out like, no, people aren't paying you. They're not furnishing your house just because you can dance good. You know, then I found out a lot right. of people were tricking 
and sleeping with their clients and, you know, and that whole out of town, it was, yeah, you're out of town. So people in the city don't know what you're doing. But when you're out of town, you're probably doing a lot worse because you're not in your city. And this was before social media. So you had a lot of girls who were out of town, hoeing. Um, yeah, back page. Um, and what people don't understand is that at least 58% of sex workers, be it strippers or otherwise, um, they've also experienced some type of sexual violence, you know, and a lot of times they oh, yeah. don't, they For don't sure. talk about it. They don't because it's like, who's going to take a stripper being sexually assaulted seriously? Like you strip for a living. That's, you know, all yeah. you do is shake your ass. Well, that doesn't mean that I deserve to be raped, you know? So it's, it's a very oh, seedy, it's a very seedy world. And I see it glamorized so much, especially on social media. Uh-huh. And I remember I was talking about on my live stream like two weeks ago when that girl Sukiana um, was talking about, oh, she's retiring from uh-huh. OnlyFans and all this BS. And there's a young girl in the comment uh-huh. section after everybody gave her props, like, you you got it, you got your money, you did your thing, and all this dumb shit. So a little young girl leaves a comment. She's like, I can't wait till I turn 18 so that way I can start making money on OnlyFans like Suki. And people jumped on oh, the young God. girl and started dragging her. And I'm like, that is BS. This society is so hypocritical. What? In one breath, you guys are praising Suki for getting that bag. And when a young girl wants to emulate the same behavior, y'all are mad at the young girl? Make it make sense, yeah. you like, know? What the, fuck? Yeah, what the fuck do you expect them to, to think, you know, if that's mm-hmm. all they're watching all day? And then these are also people, you know, I mean, Suki was on uh, Love and Hip Hop. I mean, that's a, a show most people, especially younger kids, watch. So she's known. She has some type of notoriety. I mean, she was in the WAP videos, so... They know who she is, and they see, oh, she's doing this, she's doing that. But they, another thing with the the industry, and I don't know, maybe it's just me being sensitive, but it takes a toll on you spiritually. Mm-hmm. Like talk spiritually, about it, it does. Talk about it. <laughs> it, it does. It, it and I can't. I'll, I'll try my best to articulate it, but just like when you were talking, um, you said many times, you know, when you're having sex with people and exchanging soul ties, even if you're not having sex with people, if there's someone that you literally just met and you are like, okay, you know, so let's say that the main hustle we'll just say is you go to the club, you work, you dance on stage, you get your money on stage, but the money is in the VIP. Mm-hmm. So you sell dances. So, you know, different girls come in, charge different amounts. That's why they'll be fighting. Like, that charging $20 for a dance and it's 60 and just dumb shit like that. But anyways, Say you meet someone, you talk, you spit enough game, they say, okay, I'll buy a dance from you. And someone you don't know that you, one, might not even be attracted to, there ain't no type of connection, and you're literally sitting there naked, grinding all over this person. Mm. Like, that, that's not, you know, that if you just think of that on a, a regular basis, if you go, you start a job at McDonald's, and then you have to take your clothes off and grind all over the fucking manager... How do you think that's going to like take a toll on you spiritually and doing it over and over and over again on a daily basis? You know, money isn't going to put that, that fill that hole. Mm. And that's even, that's just with dancing. I only imagine if you're having sex with them, which the majority of the people do like strip clubs are the majority. I'm not saying every girl, because I know some girls who don't, but People who are really deep in that industry, it definitely is not as glamorous as it looks. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the sex industry. 
you look at this, you know, Jenna Jameson, for one, she was a huge porn star. She battled with addiction. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was because of the porn industry. Yeah, she looks it horrible. It spiritually takes... Yeah, yeah. She's doing... I, I checked her Instagram a while back. She's she's doing a lot better. Yeah, she's in she recovery. Mm-hmm. So that, that's good. But yeah, for a minute, she, she got really bad off because it ain't no joke. You know, you can't... When you are... Ex- in the manner that it is and you're getting this close to people and getting so intimate with these people that you don't know and their energy is rubbing off on you. Mm. And there's a lot of, you know, I'm not saying everybody goes to the strip club and buys a dance. There's anything wrong with that, but it does. It takes a toll on you spiritually. And that's when a lot of drug use comes in because it numbs that, that pain and it makes you numb. To it, and it's just like okay, it's just another day, another dollar, and then you wake up one day and realize, yeah, that you know you went into it thinking, oh, I get to dress cute, and mm-hmm. I get to pick out me a cute little name, and you know I get to tell all my friends, okay, I'm a stripper, I make money, I you know I ain't working at Waffle House this weekend, I done got me a better job, and uh, you know next thing you know, you're like you were saying with your friends that have money and their apartments and stuff furnished. They probably weren't all there. Like, they probably still didn't feel whole because it does. I mean, and like I said, I could just be super sensitive because I know some people are like, ah, I don't give a fuck. But with me, I, I don't know if my situation was a little different because my parents, they fought me tooth and nail. They didn't want me doing that shit, but eventually they just knew I was going to do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so I still, li- I, I was working at the strip club and I was still living with my parents. My brother came and picked me up every night. Mm. But I saw, yeah, he did, because he didn't want, that. you know, like, they didn't want me getting pimped out or anything. Right. Because that's what happens, because right. a lot of times it it wears on you mentally, it wears on you emotionally, and not to mention physically. That shit physically ain't no joke. Yeah. <laughs> like, it will wear the pole dancing and shit, mm-hmm. that, but even, you know, just it, it ain't no joke. But what ends up happening, which I noticed, and I was, they, you know, they sell drugs inside the club anyway. You can usually get just about anything you wanted. But a lot of girls, I remember this one girl, gorgeous, I mean, just drop-dead gorgeous girl. And she always had these two dudes, both of them were fine as hell, had dreads and stuff. And a real nice car <clears throat> always dropped her off. And they always came and picked her up. And I remember there was a dude that was coming to get, uh, who he was like a, a trick or whatever. It would come and pretty much buy everybody drinks, pills, whatever. And anyway... Uh, she was like, give me, give me the pills, give me the pills. And I was like, okay. And she wanted to get them in the club before she left because the second she walked out that door, all that money she made went straight to them. And I remember asking her, like, why do you give them all your money? And it was because she was so addicted that she wasn't even really working for money anymore. I mean, they gave her a place to stay and buy her cute clothes and, you know, stuff like that, you know, keep her looks up. But she wasn't getting that money. And this could also be in Memphis, too. But most of the girls in the clubs, they have pimps. Mm. And they go, and it, it doesn't even start out. Like, there'll be dudes in the corner just watching. And if you start, you know, especially if you're on drugs, you're not working for money. You're working to get high. Because yeah. you start out, oh, I, I bought some ecstasy from dude in the corner, and I made you know, a thousand dollars that night, you know, Memphis, that ain't that much now, you know, in Miami and shit like that, probably a lot more, but Memphis, eh, well, it probably ain't even that good now, but anyway, uh, <clears throat> those dudes, you know, would 
sell it to you. And if you're coming in every night and you see the difference in the money you're making, well, eventually the money that you're making, you're turning it around and you're giving it to them to buy more. So it'd be pain pills, coke, uh, ecstasy, uh, meth, anything. So eventually you're spending all your money before you even make it out the club. And then you, you need that connection. You don't see them. You can't find them. And then end, you end up getting their number, getting wrapped up. I've seen it happen time and time again. So a lot of people get mixed up with pimps just because they need their dope before they need their money. Mm. Just so they can work, just so they can get out of bed. Yeah. And that's a really bad thing because, I mean, I, I never under – well, I'm not going to say I didn't understand it. I understand it completely. And then also, like you were talking about the um, – the abuse part, mm-hmm. you know, some people didn't have, like you said, some people didn't have family. A lot of those girls were kind of on their own. So that was protection, especially when they were tricking. Because there's a lot of times you'd leave the club with somebody and you don't know what they're going to do to you. And you meet them in a motel or whatever, you don't have anybody to call. And like you said, oh, you're just a stripper, you're just a prostitute, whatever. Well, that was protection that they had right there. Kind of like a paid security guard, but Mm -hmm. it it goes deep. It goes so deep. I I really, I I despise how glamorous they have made, and it was always glamorized. Even when I was younger, it was it was glamorized. That's why I got into it. Yeah, and also you know you kind of you kind of make your own hours, and you know I was also pretty much an addict too, so I could never hold a job. But here, oh, all I got to show up is, and you know what, talk and all, right, all this you. stuff. And mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking. And then next thing I know, like I said, I'm in, you know, I'm in the VIP. I'm good. I don't do shit that I regret, okay? I ain't sitting here judging nobody who's, you know, done some, some things, okay? I've been there. I've done it. I'm not judging. I know. I understand how you get there. But for girls who look at it from the outside looking in like I did when I was 16, 17 years old, Mm -hmm. I promise you it ain't what you think it is. Because once you get in there and you get behind the scenes and you see most girls that work in the clubs aren't happy. No. It's not like a bunch of girls that are super nice and super happy and kiki and like in Hustlers, you know, with Lizzo playing the flute to their new kitty. Yeah, that that was one thing that people told me, like all my little stripper friends – was like, that is such a lie. That is such bullshit. It's so much competition in the clubs. The girls don't like each other, you know, because you're their competition, you know? And I know one thing, even when I talked to a few of my friends, I remember it was funny because I was talking about this celebrity and um, they had DM me or whatever. And I was asking, like, you know, one of my friends about them, you know, just like, you know, what, you know, checking their temperature, right? And they're like, you know, that person is just really nasty. The way they talk to people, you know, behind the scenes and the clubs. And and I know even my friends who are not like in the industry or in the celebrity world, that's one thing that would always like really piss them off is that sometimes these dudes, they come into the club and they talk to these girls like they're trash. Like they're uh-huh. beneath them. And don't spend a dime. And yeah, don't, don't spend, spend shit. Right. 
and will talk to you like you're trash, throw a dollar in your face, call you all types of derogatory names. And it's like, it's almost like a hate. It's almost like some of these dudes, I feel like they're jealous low key because they feel like these women have it easy. Oh, when you're struggling, you can just get up on stage and shake your ass and some simp, you know, will throw dollars at you. Well, I'm going to come and give you a reality check and let you know that you're not shit. You know, and I even see that now with OnlyFans where a lot of dudes will down and talk shit to these sex workers, but you're still low key watching them. You're still low key tuning into oh, the yeah. porn, you know? So yeah, it, it's a very, yeah. it's very glamorized. I remember we were talking a little bit about it on the Discord and one of the girls were saying that, um, you know, these celebrities make it seem like it's so cool and it's all about getting a bag and, you know what I'm saying, and, and fucking somebody and getting some money and that's just what it is. But, you know, like the girl was saying in the Discord, what about the days when you do that and you just feel like shit? They don't talk about the guilt yeah, and, and the shame Absolutely. that comes with that. That's what I was saying. Yeah. yeah. And you can buy and as then, many bags never- as you want. That doesn't get rid of that. Right, and then also another thing, and like I said, you know, I I work, Memphis is, I love Memphis, you know, shout out 901, but uh, (laughs) it's not not as much of like a productive city, uh, or not a productive, a a progressive city, even like a Nashville, or uh, definitely not a Minneapolis, or um, like a Miami, or something like that. So, you know, the club scenes are a little bit, not even in Atlanta. A lot of girls would go to New Orleans or Miami, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And what they would do was they would, they'd say they were going out of town and they probably would work at the clubs. But what they would do is they would go and they would do back page because, mm. you know, here you could look up and see because in the clubs, if you work in a club and they caught you on back page, you get fired. Okay. So they would go out of town and they would go out of town and do back, back page one, because people couldn't, you know, look you up on back page and clown you. And two, you, you know, you wouldn't lose your job. Because usually if you ever, well, hell, I think they shut that shit down. But back when you would pull up back page, if yeah. you see a girl that like looked, that didn't look like a crackhead, you're like, dang, she looks real cute. She's usually probably a stripper from out of town. Mm. And that was how she was tricking because she could make a lot of money doing that. But, uh, crap, I just, oh, oh, money. Okay, so here, when I was working, and that was, Probably, gosh, it's maybe 2008 to like 2011 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, probably right around that time, somewhere in there. But anyway, you don't, not every night you make money. I've had nights where I went in Talk about and it. left the club with $200. So mm-hmm. I've left the club with $30 before, okay? Because it's not like you just walk in and people are just throwing money at you right. and then, you know, you have payout at the end. First, yep, you got to pay the, the house. Top, the first, People yeah, forget about the that. Top, you have payout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the first, your first, um, well, the one that I worked at was, I think it was like 75 So the first $75 you make, that ain't even yours. You got to pay that out because if you don't do payout, you can't come back. Mm-hmm. So you have to pay out. You know, you have to tip off the bartender, the DJ, all this bullshit. And then um, the house mom, whatever. So then that's right off the top. If it's slow, and then you'll have dudes come in that literally just want to sit there and watch. You walk up to them, you talk to them, you know, literally sit there five, ten minutes, start talking game, trying to, you know, oh, okay, well, would you like to buy a dance, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, no. Well, then give me a fucking dollar. What the fuck are you here for, you know? Like, <laughs> right. you, know you, get, you get frustrated. Like, what are you here for then? You done paid money to come in? 
get your little free drink and just see some titties? Like, really? Mm-hmm. And then also in Memphis around that time, too, like, uh, it wasn't full nude bars. I mean, that you could show your boobs, but like, you couldn't you couldn't show, you know, your, your bottom half. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why, like, I was telling you toward the end of my career, but I was so spun out. I would literally tell people, because we would get a, a lot of Hispanic people, um, come in and they couldn't speak very good English and so I'm like hey I'll, I'll fuck you for a hundred dollars if you'll come up to VIP and they're like okay cool they understood that and right. uh, <laughs> went up there <laughs> they understood that I said okay you gotta pay me first and then I would go to the like the little locker room or whatever and then they'd just be looking for me and uh, they you know really couldn't articulate or speak it or whatever and then the damn um, the guy who the security guard up there mm-hmm, the bouncer. come up to me and say hey if you're going yeah, the bouncer, he's like, hey, if you're going to be, you know, uh, uh, pulling tricks like that, you're going to start um, uh, tipping me, you know. Mm-hmm. So he would leave the night. I mean, because some nights, if we were busy, I would do that five, six, seven times. And then, hell, he'd be leaving with just about as much money as I fucking did. Isn't but that crazy? Some nights. It's like women are getting pissed yeah. all the way around <clears throat> in that industry. Even yeah. when you're trying to do yeah. little slick stuff. Yeah, which was totally... It's, I, I, it's nothing I'm proud of. I feel like that. It's just slimy, greasy. Like, it's just shitty to do. I mean, mm-hmm. I was I was stealing out from those people. So it's definitely not something that I'm proud of at all. But that literally, toward the end, got to where I'm like, shit, I need money. And, and nothing else is working. Like, they don't want to buy a dance. They don't want to buy a $40 dance. But they think, you know, they'll get, you know, get them something special up in the VIP then, then all of a sudden they got money. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, there's been nights where I had left the club on, you know, Thursday nights, Friday nights with maybe less than a hundred dollars because there just wasn't no money there. And it's not always popping like that. Yeah. So and that's you what do all of, that extra shit. Mm hmm. And, and that's, yeah, yep, for nothing. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. It's like we've glamorized it where people think as soon as you go to the club because you're the new hot girl in town, all these men are just going to be showering you with money. You're going to have sugar daddies and all this shit. And <laughs> I'm here to tell you, I know so many ex-strippers, and that was not the case. The Anna Nicole situation, uh-huh. that is such a rarity. That's like winning the lotto. Remember when that old-ass man married her and, you know, took oh, out the yeah. strip club? Like, that's a rarity. Uh, yeah. And one thing I've noticed about, like, some of my friends that strip for a long time you know, it's almost like they have like a PTSD and some of them are like really bitter and jaded, like really jaded. Oh, absolutely. And they talk so yeah. much shit about like younger girls and, oh, all these little girls on OnlyFans are just a bunch of hoes. And it's like, hold up now. You forget the shit you was doing when you yeah. were 18, 19, 20. You know, like don't judge them so fast. It's just a new day and age. And I think that's uh-huh. the part, even though... You know, OnlyFans was put out there for, you know, regular stuff initially, right? People showing you how to cook and, you know, do, you know, whatever, right? Then you have that sexual Uh aspect of it. And so part of me is like, you know, yeah, sex sells. And part of me is like, you know, at least these women, you know, they're setting their own terms and they're getting, you know, all their money. But in the grand scheme of things, we don't really know that. We don't know what goes on behind the scenes. The same way when you exactly. got, when you were struggling and you were having to, you know, trick those dudes out of their money and the bouncer was like, hey, I need a cut. I'm sure even though those girls are performing, everybody's eating. 
from the cameraman to the person setting stuff up. So there's still that pimping uh-huh. aspect there. You know, it's just that yeah. they've taken it from doesn't the club only fans to their home. You said what? Yeah. And doesn't OnlyFans take a percentage of it too? Oh yeah. Yep. They definitely take a percentage of it. You know, so while it seems like for some people it can be a way, but like I said, even with OnlyFans, you already have to go in with the fan base. So let's say me and you decide to boast out of OnlyFans, right? You know, you're a dancer. You probably got way better moves than I do. But we boast out of OnlyFans. <laughs> I'm probably going to be able to pull more people and make more money. Why? Because I already have a fan base. Because a majority of my tea sippers would go and sign up for my OnlyFans just because they rock with me. Whereas if you don't have an online presence, you're going to be struggling. That's why I keep trying to tell people, like, you already have to have some type of notoriety, some type of online presence. It's very hard to start from the ground up. Because when you do, you got to be even wilder. You got to do, you got to be willing to do anything. So that way you can compete with the Sukis and the people who already have a fan base, especially with all these celebrities taking over. And I know a lot of strippers were Uh complaining about that because they said that they're the ones who really help build OnlyFans, a lot of the strippers and the porn stars. And now a lot of them are being kicked Uh off and replaced by celebrities. So they're pissed. Oh, yeah. Well, I I mean, I get it. Mm -hmm. I, I I totally under understand that aspect of it for sure. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, especially with the like if you were a girl, you go into a strip club, okay, there's already an audience there, but when it comes to all this online shit, yeah, you gotta have a presence. You gotta have a following. And a lot of girls I know that, you know, were were strippers or whatever, most of the time their social media accounts, like Facebook and stuff, mm-hmm. that's kinda of more of a private thing. They don't want, you know, yeah. dudes from, you know, Johns and stuff from the uh the club and stuff like that coming through so you know they probably don't even have that great of a following as far as that goes there's what else I was about to say but damn I just forgot oh well it'll come to me later (laughs) yeah and that's the thing social (laughs) media has really played in this with the whole glamorization is that now, like I said, even before COVID hit, they've taken the strip club to online. So like even in New York City, they made the bartenders so more popular that people were going to the bartenders and spending money with them. But then the strippers who were butt naked on the stage, nobody's paying them any mind because why the bartenders were getting verified on social media. They were creating Uh followings for themselves. So and that was causing a lot of conflict in New York. Now, that wasn't going to happen in Atlanta. You're not coming to the South and think you're about to be a bartender and making more than me. And I'm shaking no. my ass. They shut that shit down in Atlanta. They might no, do that in New York. Them oh, bartenders yeah. in Atlanta, hell no. They don't play that, you know. No, they didn't. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Atlanta is a tough. Atlanta, you, I never went to Atlanta. I would go to, like, New Orleans or something like that. But I wasn't, Atlanta ain't no joke when it comes to the, the club, club scene and stuff like that. They don't play. Mm-hmm. I heard stories of girls getting it. Throwing ice up on the stage and bitches breaking their ankles and shit. But I, I remember what I was going to say. It was uh, about the PTSD, mm-hmm. and that is very, very true. Because I remember when uh, I had stopped working at the club because I, I couldn't. I was trying to get sober, so I couldn't work at a club and be so like they just that was like an oxymoron for me. But I shout out. To, I know girls who do. So shout out to them. Uh, I just wasn't ever one of those. Um, but anyway, so I I went to rehab and uh, I quit dancing and I went to rehab and uh, I was only there for like a week just to kind of like physically detox and I got out and it was kind of like PTSD. Like it took me, I don't think I did I, much of anything for probably six months 
because I, I didn't know how to go and work like a real job. And I know that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but I mean, it, it took probably about six months later, I got a waitressing job because that was kind of the only thing kind of similar, you know, to where you're getting kind of money that day or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had, I didn't know how to go to work and just function as like a normal person because I've spent so many years in that club life, that late night, oh, you show up when you want, you leave when you want. You, I mean, you can be drunk, high, whatever, and then you just go home. Mm. So it does, and it, t- it takes a minute for you to kind of process everything that happens. And I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that you know that's an industry. You know, it's just, just oh, it should just be gone because I know a lot of people are able to. It, it works for them. I'm like you. I don't judge. However, anybody decides to eat, but I just definitely. Uh, recommend that younger girls that are considering doing that. I don't know how the hell if strip clubs are even a thing now with COVID. Uh, Only fans, one, that's something that's documented forever. So thank God that stuff wasn't really that big when I was, you know, wilding uh, or working. But as far as uh, strip clubs go, I, I just definitely recommend for girls to really, really think about it and research it as much as possible. And don't just look at the glitz and glam. Like, know that it is a very seedy industry. You have to have a lot of, uh, you can't succumb to uh, peer pressure. Like, mm-hmm. you can't, you have to be very strong-minded, strong, like how you were talking about that story with that dude. A lot of people wouldn't, even me, especially me, I was thinking if that was me when I was younger, I would have been like, oh, okay, just because I have a hard time saying no. Like, you have to have, be very strong-willed, strong-minded, very focused. Don't get mixed up in the bullshit because it's very easy to. It's very easy to get sucked in, and it will. you'll get sucked in and spat out Yeah, very quickly. Yeah, it's no joke. Well, Emily, we've been on here for a little bit over an hour. So this was a really good discussion, and I just want to thank you so much for taking time out to come and talk to me and talk on my podcast to my audience about, you know, your life and what you've been through. And that's why I really want to do this. You know, for me, like I've always told you guys, I prefer talking to just regular everyday people because I feel like regular people really have a story to tell. They just don't have a place to tell them. Right. You know, and right. <laughs> it's like we, we know all of the, you know, the stories of celebrities and what they've gone through and stuff like that. I'd rather hear from regular people because we're going to keep it real and raw and it's going to be more relatable, you know. And again, Absolutely. yeah, we don't talk about this to judge people or to condemn anything. It's just we're just showing you there's other sides. And just be careful. If you're going to be doing drugs and and dabbing on stuff on the weekend and, you know, drinking lean here and there, realize that one of those side effects could possibly be you becoming addicted and your life spiraling out of control. Because nobody, they, they only show the glamorous side. They never talk about the consequences. And this is what I want to talk about. You know, yes, there's an aspect where you can make money stripping and being on OnlyFans and, you know, doing porn but there's also that other side that people don't like to talk about is that spiritual side that energy the ptsd the the feelings of regret and you know being depressed and being down on yourself you know and if you're not built for that you may not want to go down that road so do you have any last words for my tea sippers 
I definitely agree with everything you you just said. That if you hit the nail on the, the head, I think that's the the thing. But yeah, pretty much that. It's I'm not judging anybody because trust me, I've been through it. Um, I definitely just tell people be careful out here. It's a crazy world. Um, do what you want to do, but you know, just just make sure you're ready and you know what really goes on behind the scenes and don't believe everything. What you, what's just that? Well, everything that glitters ain't gold. Exactly. But, um, <laughs> and, for, and those for who are uh, struggling uh, with addiction right now and feel like there's no way out, there is. There's just, it, it's not easy. But if it's something that you really want to do, you can get through it and you can, you know, you can tell a story 10 years later. I've been sober, um, almost 10 years, so uh, somewhere around there. So, yeah, there is a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and, um, you know, just keep working at it. It's just a process, but you can do it. Well, thank you so much once again, Emily. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, are- thank you so much. <laughs> no, you are definitely welcome. <laughs> so on that note, you guys, we are out, and we will see you guys later on another episode of Tea Time Unfiltered with your girl, Lovely Tea. Thank you for listening to today's show. Make sure you join us again soon. For all the latest tea, make sure you follow me on my social media pages. Just put in L-O-V-E-L-Y-T-I on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.